All right, take your Bibles, turn to Acts 20. There are roughly 350,000 religious congregations spread throughout the United States. 350,000. According to the Journal for Scientific Study of Religion, an estimated 30,000 congregations closed their doors from 2006 to 2012. However, the number of faith communities increased by almost 50,000 because of new churches being formed in that time. So we can safely say that thousands of churches per state exist on average. And if you didn't know, about 400 faith communities exist in this region of the Springfield area. Now that's a potential for great influence from religious communities. Now for some, they would say, yeah, well, that's the problem, right? That's a danger. For others, they would see that as a, a really good opportunity for, uh, for impact. Now, you know, you have political organizations, political influences that exist. We have educational institutions that make an impact. We have voluntary social services that, that help many in a, in a variety of needs and, and areas. But I'd challenge anyone to come up with an organization that has more influence in society, particularly on a grassroots level, than a church. And for the Christian church that is committed to the gospel and the word of God, they are the only organization that possess the elements to transform people from the inside out. Wow. I mean, our mission is unique, it's desperately needed, and it has endless eternal impact. That's the church. So given the stakes that are so high, that are so, so important, we have so much influence, how important then would you say are the leaders of each of those faith communities? Very important. Because it's in their hands that the mission is accomplished and each congregation stays on target. It's in their hands that the Christian leaders are to ensure that the the gospel and the word of God are put in their rightful position and given every opportunity to do the work that God intended. It's in their hands to, to safeguard the direction of the congregation and address the community around us with love and compassion and, and kindness. It's no wonder then that the Apostle Paul, after he had spent three years helping establish this church at Ephesus, and then he left... And now he's coming back to the region. It's no wonder as he's passing through, he's wanting to meet with the leaders of that church in Acts 20. Now he knows that he is not going to see them again. This is the last opportunity he's going to have to speak to them. This is what he wants them to know, what he wants to give them to fulfill their calling. I mean, there's a lot on the line here with Paul and in this opportunity that he has. So if there's, if there's one message that you could give to church leaders, and I, I'm not just talking, you know, pastors, but, you know, these were elders, these were 
I guess in our terms, you'd say voluntary church leaders, right? If there was one message you could give them, I would have to say Acts 20, 28 through 38 would have to be the meat of that script. And that's what we're going to look at in these next couple weeks. So let's all stand as we take a look at this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down, prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful because of, uh, of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Father, there's a lot of drama, a lot of truth in this passage, and definitely things that we can carry away for ourselves, and I pray that you would do that by the power of your Spirit. Shine a light on the truth you have for us. Oh, Father, if there's any direction or motive or anything that I might have in my heart or might say that's an error, just I pray that you'd cause somehow, some way for people to discern that, be able to pick out the bones and take the meat. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher today. And I pray that these things that Paul is trying to communicate to these leaders at Ephesus from 2,000 years ago, that these would be inculcated in us as a people, that our church would be strong in every way possible. For we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. One Chinese proverb on leadership said this. A leader is best when people barely know that he exists. Not so good when people obey and acclaim him. Worse when they despise him. Fail to honor people, they fail to honor you. But of a good leader who talks little when his work is done, his aim fulfilled, they will all say, we did this ourselves. Paul modeled, I think, the humility reflected in this proverb. And it gives him a platform to speak authoritatively to the leaders at Ephesus. And so to all the leaders here at Christ Community Church, and to all of you who will someday become leaders. I believe that this passage is going to cause us to sit up a little straighter. And I'm going to ask that we have our ears and our hearts open to hear what the Spirit might say to us. 
Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Pay close attention to yourself. It's indeed a message that not all leaders hear very well, and even less do. It's easy to get burned out, emotionally spent. It's easy not to take care of the body. It's easy not to rest and to be a workaholic. I shared with you my own journey as we went through the messages on the Sabbath and the need to not be in such a hurry and to to take a rest and to practice this, to pay close attention to yourself. I'm happy to report I'm getting better. (laughs) We're not there, but getting better at it. When Paul was instructing a young pastor, Timothy, at Ephesus, he said, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul is telling Timothy, first of all, stay on the playing field and do your part. Fulfill the responsibility that God has given to you. And by not neglecting the gift, I think it's a way of saying, you know, stay in your lane. Be smart. Work efficiently. You're not good at everything. And then he says, you could save yourself plenty of trouble and save the people you're serving plenty of trouble and heartache by paying attention to these things. Many leaders forget such counsel. And not only do they suffer, but so do those that they are serving. In Galatians 6, in a passage where Paul is instructing uh, the church about how to deal with other people, how to confront, how to address an issue, he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. It's a way of saying, don't get too cocky. Uh, Don't think that you could never fall and, and never sin in an area that you're condemning others for. I remember at our graduation at college, at the Moody Bible Institute, the, one of the speakers said, when you say never, Satan gets clever. You know, like to say to yourself, I would just, I would never cheat on my spouse. Well, I get and appreciate the commitment, but the fact is we're all capable. And the sooner you realize that, the more you'll put boundaries around yourself, right? And recognize that you're human, you're frail, and you are not made of of iron, that there are things that can impact our heart and we can be vulnerable. So remember that. I have to look to the Lord constantly for, for strength and wisdom. Paul said he wants to stay disciplined in 1 Corinthians 9 so that he doesn't do something stupid and become disqualified from ministering. It reminds me that 
leadership is a gift from God. God places us in leadership. It's not something you necessarily earn. Sure, there might be some qualifications, but there are a lot of people who are qualified that are not in the position. That God has graced you with something and that you're to, you're to handle that with great care. But you can be disqualified by maybe stealing, illicit relationship, a whole host of things. And so discipline yourself. Watch out for yourself. Pay close attention not only to yourself, but to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to care for the church of God. So these leaders are to be shepherds, to care for the flock. And the Holy Spirit has gifted them and outfitted them for this position. The fact is many a church leader feels very gimpy, not very confident about being a leader. And Paul is causing with these words for the leaders, like I said before, to stand a little straighter, to approach this with some confidence. Now this could be said of a spouse, of a church leader, a parent. There comes often a seminal moment when you feel like quitting, but God undergirds you and you realize there's no turning back. I mean, I am already married. I'm already a parent. God has obviously put this here. I'm already in a position of leadership. So I'm to, I'm to move forward with a great confidence. Church leaders oversee here, as Paul says, the affairs of the church. They're to make sure that the direction is good and godly and effective, and they're to care for the flock. It's a, certainly a noble position, whether it's vocational or, or voluntary to serve in the church. But I want you to listen to some of the commentary on shepherds from the Old Testament and New. These are both positive and negative. I just want to give you a taste of the, uh, of the seriousness of the task. It says this, Therefore, thus says, this is out of Jeremiah, the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Now, for those who think that perhaps pastoring or being a shepherd is a gravy train, easy. If I had a dime for everybody who said, you know, you just work on Sundays. <laughs> well, listen to this. Tell me if you'd like to have this hanging over your head. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. Peter said, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge, but being examples to the flock. So at the least, at the least, even if you don't understand all that's going on here, 
we can understand that there are specific responsibilities for church leaders. That there are things that they would do that would be derelict in terms of their responsibilities and things that they would do that would be meeting those responsibilities and and blessing not only themselves but others in doing those things. Being accountable to God implies specific responsibilities and goals for which any person in their right mind would take to heart, right? If you know that you're accountable to God with these things. It kind of begs the question, why are the stakes so high? Why is it such a big deal? Paul answers that. Because the church is made up of God's people which he obtained with his own blood. We could say it this way, that if the world is God's by virtue of creation, then the church is his by redemption, namely the giving of blood by his very son. Never underestimate the value and the significance of the church, no matter what size. The church is important because it has God's name on it. Notice he said, the church of God. Now that's not a denomination, that is a moniker for all the churches that preach the gospel, hold the scripture. It's the church of God. The church is important to the Father because it bears his name. The church is important to the Son because he shed his blood for her. And the church is important to the Spirit because he gives the church gifts to equip them, to empower them to accomplish her mission. All leaders are being delegated, notice, by God to care for this most sacred possession, his church, with his own blood. Now, we know it was Christ who died on the cross, and it's with his own blood. It speaks of God. He's relating Christ to God. I mean, the union between the divine and human nature are displayed in what is called God's own blood. Listen, I know the church has its problems. I've gone through a season or two being a pastor for 30 years, being cynical about the church as a whole. There are a lot of things that I could criticize that I don't like. The church has had major issues through the centuries. This church has had issues through its 34-year history. In fact, I was speaking to the elders this week of how amazing it is that we're still standing. I mean, I think of, this is not faux humility, it's fact, all the mistakes I have made, the stupid things that I have done, all the issues that that we've had as a church, I've had to deal with, I still can't believe it's still standing. I mean, God has sustained his church. It's his. It's not mine, it's not yours. It's his. And we exist because he is building his church. And he calls it his bride. 
Now, many of you don't know me very well, but one thing you will know about me real quick is if you criticize my wife, okay, that'll be a no-no in my presence. You could say things about me. Of course, you know, that's just part of the job, right? And that's okay. But don't malign my wife. Those are fighting words. They may not be very pastoral, but it's just, that's who I am, sorry. Now, think of it this way, okay? How are we going to talk about Christ's bride? We have to be cautious how we speak of his bride. Is she perfect? No. Nobody said she was. Nobody's claiming that. But I'll tell you this. God loves her. Christ died for her. So I think word of value, the church, not only in how we participate, but how we speak of her, the bride of Christ. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Two sides that Paul wants these leaders to consider. There will be people from the outside that will come into the church to disrupt, and then there will be people from the inside, the church, that will distort things for their advantage. This is really church 101 from the Apostle Paul. It's like he's saying, hey guys, you know, I don't know what you're thinking about what the future has for you, but let me tell you, there's always gonna be issues. There's always gonna be conflict. But don't take it lightly because the opposition is fierce. He didn't say, you know, they're like little puppies who just snap at you, you know, they lick you. No, they're like wolves. I think I have one in my attic. I think I caught it last night, all right? <laughs> Might be a raccoon or possum, I don't know, but I heard it crash and go down, and I had to get here, so in the afternoon, I gotta go and find out what I've got. First, let's be clear about what and who Paul is not talking about, okay? Paul is not describing people in the church who leave a church. That's not the, that's not the issue here. Paul is not even describing people in the church who have issues and who leave. That's not the issue either. This is a whole separate thing. Paul says, after I leave, wolves are coming. I think what he means is that there are times in which a church is, is vulnerable and that Satan knows when those vulnerable times are and he is there to maim. He is there to cause injury. The, the evil one is strategic in his attacks. In fact, Ephesians 6.11 speaks of the schemes of the devil. All right, he's far smarter than we are. Now, we might have more in Christ, which we do, and we can stand against it, but don't take Satan for granted. 1 Peter 5.8 talks about Satan also being like a lion who looks to devour people in the church. He looks for the most vulnerable like any lion, and then he heads for that, usually the last one in the herd or the weakest one in the herd. So, be aware of those vulnerable points. Not sparing the flock, that's what our passage says, has the idea that Satan's motive is to injure, to maim, or destroy those in the flock. Now, how might he do this? I mean, it's not like he has his hitmen just shooting people. It's another kind of strategy. And what he uses, we're going to see, talked about here, 
First Peter, or excuse me, First Timothy 1. Certain persons, by swerving from these things, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things which would they make confident assertions. Notice the swerving. There's, there's deceit. That means there's a veering away from the truth of the gospel, from the word of God. They speak confidently. They have the goal to get people off the mission that God has given the church and advancing the kingdom of Christ. They are a distraction. And they create distractions. 1 Timothy 4 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, God, uh, crea- everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Here it's plain that often those who come into a church want to wreak havoc by utilizing some kind of legalism, some kind of extra stuff to put on top of the gospel. Things that God already approves of, they want to try to condemn. And what happens when you do this, especially with vulnerable Christians, they get caught up and it's like, well, you know, I I don't want to be caught short. And then these kind of people will give them, you know, what they think is their secret sauce to get close to God. People buy into it. But understand this, 2 Timothy 3. Now, by the way, I give you Timothy because Timothy was a pastor at Ephesus. So it's kind of, you know, a follow-up here. Understand this, that in the days that will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. That means you cannot approach them. They will not listen. They are not open to a discussion. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Seems rather harsh. Avoid such people. I don't say this often, but there are some who will come to church, give me a call, or we'll sit down, And they'll tell me about what they're looking for. And I'll just say, you know what? Our church is not for you. You probably ought not to come here. I used to not say that because, you know, you want to get everybody to come. And, you know, we can be a church for everybody, right? You think that. But then you realize you can smell an agenda a mile off after you've been in this for a while. And I can just say, and it's not that we don't welcome people, but I just say, you probably won't like it here. (laughs) You come in with that agenda that's just not going to, that's just going to create conflict. Avoid them. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as James and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men.
Again, preying upon the vulnerable. The message that these wolves use will come right along with the culture. Not loving good, approving of any pleasure. God would want you happy. Just do what you want. So, you know, we, we want to be loving. Just all hold hands, sing kumbaya. We're not going to condemn, judge. We're not going to do anything to get in the way of what you want to do. Denying the gospel. Calling good what God calls unholy. Denying the plain truth of the word of God. While all that stands out there, I want to draw your attention to the end here because it gives us great hope. They'll not get very far for their folly will be plain to all. You know what that says? Timothy, you do your job as a pastor and you teach people the word of God, they will be able to see the counterfeit quickly. They'll be able to detect, you know what? Something's not right there. I smell something rotten in Denmark. I don't know what smells in Denmark, but it must be pretty bad, all right? (laughs) Then there will be those who arise from within the church, and from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. There can be those who were once well thought of from among us that we might have had confidence in. And by the way, I'm not exempt from this. None of us are exempt from this, okay? So that's why I think Paul is saying this. Make sure you're not in that category, but know that you'll always have this um, possibility within the congregations, right? Those who are well thought of that you had confidence in, they will grow proud, they will be conceited, opinionated, and they think that they will be able to improve upon the gospel. They'll pretend to be your friend with all kinds of niceties, but all the while, they are creating alliances to what? To draw away disciples after them. See, when something is twisted, it's cast as truth, but it actually deviates from the truth. In other words, these people will be talking about freedom, forgiveness, but their lives resemble bondage and bitterness. They'll be talking about blessings and riches, but their hearts are greedy and filled with avarice, and they will try to draw disciples away. Their approval and love is contingent upon you agreeing with them and following them. It's my experience that people who fit into this category and twist the truth, as I mentioned before, they will not engage once they are confronted. They will avoid you. I think it's because they don't want to be exposed. So they work in the shadows, talking behind others' backs, spreading ill will, creating alliances, And they want people to think you have to be on their side to be on God's side. Now, this second group are not necessarily the fierce wolves. I mean, being a wolf implies 
That group, definitely unbelievers. The second group in verse 30 leaves room that these people could be believers. These people are from within the church, but their game is power and control, and they often will utilize some kind of pseudo-legalism. You know, you gotta be a part of their little pet project, and it turns people away from the simplicity and the beauty of God's grace. And what happens is their little community is very skinny, and they often will leave friends in the dust who don't follow hook, line, and sinker with them. And so all they do is wash and repeat with a new set of friends every few years. But see, the healthy church is much different than this. The healthy church is displayed in a diverse body that works through issues and gives people freedom to make their own choices without condemnation, and particularly about secondary issues, right? I mean, I look, for instance, at my own marriage, and I've told you this before, that my wife and I disagree about some substantive things, and not necessarily spiritually, but just other things, all right, that are important to us both. We don't agree on everything. We're still married. In fact, it'll be 39 years in two weeks. God bless that woman. That's all I can say, all right? But it works because we have a greater goal in mind than just agreeing with one another. Because love understands diversity. We don't require from each other that we have to agree on everything in order for there to be love and unity. And I think the healthy leaders realize this, that they don't have to know everything. They don't have to have the the corner on the market on how the Holy Spirit moves or what truth is. They're going to make mistakes along the way. They just relax a little bit and allow people to make their own decision on some things. Now, we all agree on the authority of the Word of God. We all agree on the gospel. These are non-negotiables there, right? But I think the rest of it, a lot of it, we can just say, hey, let's have a discussion about this. And we have to be open to that. This week, I was asked a question. That was a great question. The person asked me, what would I tell myself at 30? What would I tell my 30-year-old self? What would I do differently? How would I change? You know, now that I'm 40, what would I say? (laughs) My, My answer was that I would tell that person, that young man, that my identity and security are in Christ and him alone. As I look back on the humdingers that Janet and I have had, at the root of it, much of it is my security and approval being in what she thinks of me. As I look at my biggest mistakes as a pastor, I can see much of it is rooted, and trust me, there could be a book written about this, my mistakes. Much of it is rooted in my approval being in other people instead of in Christ alone. I might have saved myself a lot of heartache and you a lot of heartache by realizing quicker that I was being schmoozed for someone's agenda. Now I can see it a little better than what I could then. I could have possibly saved the church from some distractions along the way. We're all in process. We're all learning. 
I try not to beat myself up over it, but I realize that all of us as leaders have to learn these same lessons. Our security and significance are in Christ and him alone. That he's my captain, he's my king that I'm to listen to and try my darndest to hear clearly what he's saying and to follow that. We're all responsible to do our part. But Christ said he's the one that is going to build his church. He's the one who makes the fruit. He's the one who gives the increase. He's the one who does the transforming. You know what I do? I come to this building project, if we want to see it as that, if we were looking at trying to construct something. Hey, I'm just coming with my utility knife and tape measure and tell me what I need to do. And we all are coming with, you know, what our gifts are, seeing how we can help. And I hope that all of us can do it with hearts of love, hearts of service, hearts of grace toward one another. And I don't mind saying, the way his bride looks here, man, I love her. I think she's a beautiful thing. And I think she'll get even prettier with age. Let's pray.